As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Right now, I am so pleased to say uh, my colleague David Weston joined over with Bank of America Chair and CEO Brian Moynihan. David? We are joined now by Brian Moynihan. He is chair and CEO of Bank of America. Brian, thank you so much for joining us here at the end of the year. David, it's great to have you here and happy holidays. And you can see our teammates out there working away on the trading floor here at One Bryant Park. Yeah, and we're going to go back to the trading floor because you had quite a year in trading. But first, talk about the year overall. There have been a fair number of surprises given what some people expect at the beginning of the year. Certainly, the stock market has done very, very well. We had more interest rate hikes than we thought we would have. Unemployment has really held down pretty well. And we didn't have that recession so many people thought we would. Now, I must say, when I talked to you throughout the year, you kept saying the economy looks pretty strong. Some of your compatriots were saying, oh, no, her hurricanes and tornadoes and things like that. So how'd you get it right? Well, we just, we just try to follow the data. And I think there were unexpected events. There are unexpected events in every year. You know? And so whether it was the regional banking crisis early on in, in the year or whether it was another, you know, the Hamas uh, attack on Israel on October 7th, whether it was escalation and continuation of Ukraine, whether it's the tensions in China, these are all things that happen. And they go on all the time. But what we look at is what goes on in our core customer base, and we try to talk about what is going on as opposed to what could go on and plan for what could go on. And, you know, that's been relatively strong. And our team, you know, the spending continues even today at about 4 to 5% over last year, half the growth rate of 22 to 21, showing the consumer has slowed down, consistent with inflation getting under control, consistent with, uh, you know, the Fed using the rate structure to choke off some of the activity and it's happened. But overall, it's been a decent year and the economy's grown, unemployment stayed low and the bank's done very well. Let's talk about the consumer. Uh, you are the largest consumer banking operation in the country. Uh, we are in the middle toward, toward the end now, the holiday season. What are you seeing there? I knew until now it was holding up pretty well. Where is it right now, the consumer, as of today? Sure. So if you looked at it, November of 23 over November of 22, and this is across about three or $400 billion a month of activity, customers spending money out of their accounts, that was up about four and a half percent. So far in December, it's holding about the same. And again, that's about half the rate it was growing at last year at this time versus the year prior. And that's because the overall activity is slowing down. What's been interesting is it's broadened out to all things. Uh, there were these periodic things since the pandemic. First, people hold up and bought stuff for their house. Then they started to go out and travel some. Then they went to restaurants. Then they had uh, uh, another set of travel, different kind of travel, international travel. And then they got to concerts and things. That's all through the system. And now you see it spending kind of evenly across, you know, Retail stores are doing fine. Online sales are strong. You know, they're all up, you know, two, three percent flattish, two, four percent, depending on what it is. So everything's kind of normalized for the U.S. consumer and how they're spending money. They are in very good shape. They have money in their accounts. They're employed and the wages are growing. It doesn't mean inflation didn't affect certain parts of the of the uh, 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 American uh, public hard. But in general, when uh, uh, 
unemployment rate still in the mid threes to mid to upper threes, that is a very strong place for the consumer, but it has slowed down. You say they're in good shape. That's what I was going to ask you. They're spending money. Can they afford it? What are you seeing in terms of their bank balances? I believe those have come down some. Yeah. How fast are they coming down? So it's, it's a little bit of a two different types of customers. For consumers that had a lot of excess cash, of course, when the rate they could get on that cash went from 25 basis points to 5% plus, guess what it did? It moved the market. So the very upper balances of consumer and our wealth management customers moved the market. But if you look at the consumers that the accounts are more the money coming in and out, they're still sitting with multiples of what they had pre-pandemic. So a cohort of consumers that had between two dollars and $5,000 in their accounts pre-pandemic average about thirty-two, thirty-four hundred. They're now still sitting with about 13,000 accounts. It has come down from a peak of 13.4 down to about 12.8. So it's come down a bit, but still much higher than it was before. And that's due to all the stimulus and stuff and then you know, holding on to that. Where they go next is gonna be more interesting question. They've slowed down their spending because things got more expensive. They slowed down their spending because they got worried a little bit worried about their job. They slowed down their spending because the rates on car loans or all the things that became more expensive but they're still spending more than they did last year. And that, that's, that's a decent setup for a soft landing. Are you seeing any softness in, in consumer credit? I mean, are you seeing balances go up, delinquencies yeah. go up? Well, balances have gone up on credit cards back to where they were pre-pandemic for us and the industry. And people are like, oh my gosh, and they're up above that even that. But if you adjusted for the size of the economy, they're actually still down. And so the consumer capacity bar is strong. Mortgage, mortgages are all locked in at low rates that, the best asset for a lot of households is actually their low interest cost liability. It's, it's mixing two different things on the balance sheet, but the reality is, is a 3% mortgage is an asset for people right now because it means their payments haven't moved. So that's good news. The home equity borrowings are down for us from 30 billion to 20 some billion. That means that they're not using that equity in their house and there's more equity in their house. On the credit cards, the delinquencies are really consistent with the 19, and everybody says, well, it's back to 19. 19 was one of the best credit years in the company's history and the industry's. Uh, credit history. So that's a very strong place. Um, and so we feel good about consumer credit. And as long as the employment levels stay there, it's a little hard to believe that you'd have it. Now, lower FICO scores, you hear people talk about a little more noise, but ge the general consumer is basically a prime borrower and, and they're doing fine. What about the commercial side? Uh, you're very big in middle market, small and medium sized enterprises. Is there low in demand? What's the sentiment there? So. You know, if you think about the consumer, we keep growing customers, keep growing households, keep growing this company. If you think about on the commercial, we keep growing customers, you know, more, more logos, as our teammates call it, you know, companies that we do business with, a record number this year. The thing about it is they're not using their lines as much. So the loan balance growth on the commercial side has been a little bit sluggish, a little bit flattish. Looks like it'll bounce around in low single digits this quarter. Now, why is that happening? Line usage before the pandemic for middle market clients was 40% dropped to 30%, got back up to 36%, and it fell a couple hundred basis points. Why would companies borrow less at this point? They're worried about final demand. It's also a lot more expensive. So the Fed is having the impact, which is a loan that was like 3% to 4% is now 7 to 8%. People think about using it. So the line uses is down, meaning that they're not being as aggressive buying equipment or hiring people or extending inventories, mostly because they're worried about the economy slowing down. And when we say a soft landing, it doesn't mean the economy goes into recession, it says no, but what, we're, what our team is saying, Candace Browning, Platinum Research Team, is that we're slowing from almost a you know, four to 5% growth rate to 1% growth rate is still a major slowdown, and the business community is, is wrestling with that right now, trying to get that balance right. Uh, one of the big surprises this year came toward the end of the year with the Fed uh, decision and then the news conference with Jay Powell that really signaled, at least to most of us, yeah, they're really seriously considering rate cuts. It looks like they're coming next year. Were you surprised, and why do you think they did it? Do you think they're seeing data about the economy that it's slowing faster than we appreciate? Yeah, so let's 
let's talk about what our economists tell me and if we could feed in. We have a, the number one research team in the business and Candace and the team do a great job. They're basically, they just shifted yesterday, literally, um, and they moved to more rate cuts in 24. But the real key was what do they see in the economy? And they basically have moved from a half a percent growth rate annualized for the first three quarters of next year up above 1%. So they've, they've softened their soft landing, let's just say that. And by doing that, they've said when the Fed is seeing inflation slow as fast as it is, they basically think we get down to low twos in inflation by the year and next year, 24, and, and it carries into 25. The Fed needs to bring the rate structure down. They're saying basically 200 basis points of rate cuts, 100 next year and 125, which still leaves you at three and a quarter, three and a half. Now, the last time we were fundamentally at that rate structure was almost it was 18 years ago by the time we get there. So we've had a long stretch of very low rates, except for what happened very recently. And so that fueled a lot of activity. And now the rate structure can be fundamentally higher. It's more structurally sound. And the Fed is, is it's not really pivoted. So we got to normalize this because we're seeing the economy and the inflation come in. Not done yet, but all indications are doing there. And everything we can see that consumer spending is consistent with a 2% inflation economy. That level of spending growth in our customers was where it was in 17, 18, 19, when the Fed raised rates to bring the economy back in sync. So the stock market did pretty well this year up until that Fed decision, and then it's off to the races since then. Uh, your trading desk has done particularly well this year. To give us a sense of where it is right now. Are you going to finish the year as strongly as you have been going this quarter so far? Well, you can, from your lips to their ears, <laughs> so they've got a few weeks left. No, they're doing fine. We said that they'd be up. Uh, up year over year, which is kind of counter to the trend in the market. They've, Jimmy DeMar and the team have done a great job. And what's been interesting, it's, it's rounded out, and it's fixed income, it's equities, and it's much more consistent. They've, I, I'm not quite sure it's exactly true, but they've actually made money every single trading day this year. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's been volatility, there's been news, there's been this, and, they've, and that's because they have a balance in the business in the way that it goes through. We increased the size of the, of the business three or four years ago under Tom Montag's leadership and Jimmy's leadership, and that, that's uh, borne fruit, and they are keep gaining market share, and they're doing a great job. So I'm glad you raised that, because three or four years ago, I was here with you at Bank of America, and you said, you know what, you're gonna have to devote more capital, more people into that business. You did it, you seem to be having success. Going forward, is there yet Get more capital that you're going to allocate into trading? Yeah, as, as long as they can get the returns. You know, in the end of the day, our our return on equities, you know, 15% as a company. This business, because all the regulations and the capital is a little lower than that, but it's well above our cost of capital. As long as they can keep deploying it, we'll keep pushing capital because it's a great business and great format, and we're gaining market share, honestly, across the world. And it's a global business, so it can access much deeper client base. The team's done a great job, so they'll keep getting more commitments right. consistent with them being able to get the returns on them. One last one, Brian. Are you concerned at all that the market's maybe overreacting to what they heard from Chair Powell? I, th I think he's got this challenge that, you know, he, he was, you know, the Fed in our own mission was late to cutting off inflation. Now he's been careful not to be late to stop cutting off inflation. And the market's gonna ebb and flow. But I, I think people have to be a little careful. This is trading talk. This is, you know, the 10 year moving around between, you know, 390 and 450 and 470. It's not the real economy. The real economy is still heavily impacted by the overall rate level. It's very restrictive, and it's still coming through the system. Against that, we still have a lot of stimulus coming through the system. Yep. You know, the Infrastructure Bill, the CHIPS Act, the IRA, those are all still coming through the system. So that's yep. a tug of war he's up against. But overall, it, we believe he's engineered a soft landing through the interest rate environment. Brian, thank you so much. That's Brian Moynihan. He's chair and CEO of Bank of America. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs 
to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is a conversation that to me caps off one of the most fascinating periods of Fed history and economic history that I've ever seen. Rich Claret, a former Fed vice chair, as well as Columbia University professor and PIMCO global economic advisor, as well as renowned singer. Uh, <laughs> Rich Claret, thank you so much for being here hey, Lisa. in person. I just want to start with what you make of the past week, Fed Chair Powell's comments and the market's reaction. Well, uh, the chair's comments took me by surprise. Uh, and. Um, uh, he had a he had a, a difficult mission because it's the last meeting of the year. It's natural to look ahead, um, but yes, I thought both the press conference and the FOMC statement were were more dovish than I uh, expected. You know, there is a soft landing base case. We're all hoping for it, um, and I think the markets are really focused uh, on that. He didn't say mission accomplished. I'm not sure if he thinks mission accomplished, but. That's being interpreted uh, that uh, way. And of course, as you've mentioned on air, we've had a little bit of pushback uh, recently. Uh, so we're all now trying to assess, you know, what message they would like to deliver. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to ask yeah. you. What do you make of the pushback? Well, I think the delicate challenge, and we've discussed this on the show in the past, is a tug of war between their guidance and market pricing. You know, part of the reason Lisa inflation is expected to come down next year to two point something, uh, is because financial conditions have tightened. Uh, well, as the markets think mission accomplished and rate cuts, six cuts are, are coming in next year, that will ease conditions. That makes it less likely that inflation comes down. So it's a tri tricky point right now for the Fed. Do you think that Fed Chair Powell made a mistake? I don't think so. I think, I think he was reflecting uh, his committee um, and I think in the press conference, sometimes chairs can sort of distance themselves. And I think he was embracing the baseline view. But there is a risk case as well. And I think perhaps the, some of the pushback is to remind folks about those other scenarios. Mary Daly, in, in a yeah. Wall Street Journal uh, discussion yesterday, came out and said even if the Fed cuts rates by three times next year, that the Fed's benchmark rate will still be quite restrictive even if in that scenario. And then she wanted to say we have, uh, we have to be forward looking and make sure that we don't give people price stability, but take away jobs. Is this a new emphasis for the Fed? Well, Lisa, I think at the margin it is because I think inflation was so high for so long, I think the Fed effectively had a single mandate for a couple of years. <clears throat> we got to get inflation lower. The Fed, of course, has a dual uh, mandate. Uh, but I, I do think, and I, of course, work closely with Mary, and I'm a big fan of hers. 
I do think the issue is here is that the committee itself emphasizes financial conditions. Indeed, financial conditions made an appearance in the November statement and reappeared in December. It is true uh, that one element is the real funds rate, but other financial conditions are easing, which, as we said, makes it less likely that inflation does come down. Which uh, raises this question about whether you are right. The two-point-something kind of view of inflation is kind of what the Fed is embracing right now in order not to jeopardize the labor market. Is that what your sense is? Well, I've always thought uh, that two-point-something would be the point at which they start to think about cutting. So that is playing out in, in their uh, uh, projection. I do believe down to the individual, there are 19 of them, they all want inflation to get to two. Um, and I do agree with them that if they hold off cutting rates at all until inflation gets to two, they're, they're probably going to, to overshoot. Um, but the timing is delicate, um, and I think there is a, you know, there is a risk case on both uh, sides. Uh, but I do think they are emphasizing now the, the dual mandate more than they have been. Do you think it's because they're seeing something that other people aren't, or they're at least emphasizing in their own data some of the weakness that maybe is overlooked by people who are piling into the market? I'm not really sure of that. I think it's important for them, you know, the Fed was, was criticized a lot in 2021 and 2022 for being behind the curve. I think it's appropriate to step back and acknowledge the progress in disinflation. Um, and I think they're seeing that, but I think there's still, still a ways to go. Um, and I think in particular, the labor market may require more adjustment than they're <clears throat> factoring in, sorry. No, it's all right. I'll let no. you catch your breath. No. Uh, it's, it's a confusing moment for all of us. And I'm wondering if you think it helps or hurts the cause to see the Fed come out, Fed Chair Jay Powell with one message, and then Austin Goolsby saying, you guys, I'm surprised by your reaction, and hearing from John Williams saying, we're not really talking about rate cuts. Uh, that's, you know, that's not... That's not something you'd like to see coming out of a, of a meeting. Um, I, I think the market reaction, easing financial conditions, uh, is something that they are trying to push back against. I don't know how successful they, they, they can be, however. Do you think that easing in financial conditions does have, ultimately, an inflationary impact right now? Well, to the... To the to the same extent that if you tighten financial conditions, it lowers inflation. If they're, if they're eased on a sustainable basis, credit spreads are tight, borrowing costs are lower, valuations are up. At the margin, it supports demand. And if you think there's a demand piece to inflation, then yes. So right now, do you think that it is potentially concerning and counter to what the Fed is looking for, given the all-in feeling? And frankly, I mean, we just heard this morning, the Fed shot the bears. The Fed <laughs> wants to make people happy. I was bearish, but now I'm really bullish. I mean, is this a positive thing? <laughs> well, I, look, I, I'm very convinced that the Powell Fed will do what it takes. I, I, I think that the communications challenges, which, which were substantial in 2023, may be even more substantial in, in, in 2024. There's been speculation from a number of guests that there is a political element to this, that the calendar is tricky yeah. for the Federal Reserve, considering that heading into November, everything is going to be really politicized. Yeah. Do you buy any of that argument that that would encourage them to make a move earlier in the year? Look, the history, history shows, in fact, I checked before I came on air, 
the Fed has actually adjusted rates in most presidential election years. In fact, they cut rates in 92 and cut rates in 08, although for other reasons, and they've hiked rates as well in election years. So historically, the Fed doesn't let the political calendar dictate the outcome. At the margin, could it influence timing, say, between a June move and a September move? You know, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think that the number of rate adjustments we get next year will be the adjustments that, that the committee thinks is appropriate given the economy. Given that we are talking about the politicization, do you think that this jeopardizes some of the credibility of the Fed, given that so many people have come on here and speculated? Yeah. And we don't have any ability to basically uh, know or not know, but is there some other consequence of just that speculation? I, I really don't think so, Lisa. In the end, the Fed will be judged by returning to price stability and ideally doing so at minimal cost to the labor market. And so I think the Fed's credibility in the end will rise and fall with delivering price stability. When you talk about the potential for a reacceleration of inflation and a stickiness, do you see that coming through the services sector in a material way? Which areas of the economy could we yeah. see a more material reignition? Yeah, so I think, I think exactly. So I think goods, goods prices are now falling. So we've had goods disinflation, deflation. The service sector typically lags behind. I would also say I think the real, where the rubber will hit the road, Lisa, is in the labor market. So we've had a substantial adjustment in the labor market without any rise in unemployment. And that is great. I will say my good friend and former colleague Chris Waller uh, nailed that back in the summer of 2022. So that's wonderful. I do think, however, that you cannot have 2% price inflation target if wages are going up 4 or 5%, which is where we are now. So I think I would be, if I were there, I'd be looking at the labor market adjustment as well as the services uh, sector uh, as well. You know, one of the measures, which is core services X housing, has basically not adjusted at all in the last uh, several months. So it's still elevated. A lot of people are talking about how the economic data has been really positive and how the Fed has been doing a good job yeah. and how uh, we have seen unemployment stay low even with inflation yeah. coming down. Why do you think people feel so bad? Well, I think there's a distinction, um, and it's certainly one I've thought about and, and written about. Um, economists tend to focus on inflation. That's the change in prices. But individuals in the economy tend to think about the level of prices. So even if inflation returns to 2%, the level of things, going to the grocery store, going to the movies, uh, you know, rent on your apartment, those numbers are all, you know, a lot higher than they were four, four years ago. So I think when inflation's low and stable, we tend to ignore that. But when you've had a big move in the level of prices, I think it does create uh, more uh, concern among households than you may infer just by looking at the inflation data. I want to ask you, though, also about the housing market. Yeah. You mentioned rents being higher. Yeah. We just got housing starts and building permits yeah. come in higher than expected. We do see some of the uh, Treasury rally pair back, which is uh, what you would expect. Does the high price of homes, in addition to the lack of any volumes, also create some sort of real dampening effect to sentiment? Uh, well. I think the high valuation for homes obviously makes the people who own homes happier, but there's a distributional consequence, especially for younger parts of the, of the population, folks in their 20s and 30s who have not yet acquired that first home, and whatever they thought about 
the cost of ownership three or four years ago, it's a lot higher. But there's a huge wealth effect, positive wealth effect for folks who own homes. Presumably, they're happy about that. Well, but it raises this question yeah. about what this does longer term yeah. to the inflation dynamic, but also to sentiment, particularly for younger yeah. individuals who haven't gotten in. Yeah, well, it, it does. And I think that um, this is an unusual period, Lisa, in the sense that uh, because so many folks refinanced into low-rate mortgages in the prior decade, uh, the Fed, including when I was there, was doing QE to, to support the, the mortgage uh, market. And because these are 15- and 30-year fixed-rate mortgages, it is having this effect on supply that may be with us for a while. We're, uh, we're here with Richard Clarida of PIMCO, formerly uh, Fed Vice Chair. We are going to be having a conversation with my colleague David Weston, with Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. And I do want to get your take, uh, Rich, on whether you are seeing the stability in banks as one reason why a soft landing can materialize, right? Oh, yeah. Is that sort of one tailwind, tailwind uh, that to a lot of this rally that was not there, say, in March? Lisa, absolutely. You know, the global financial crisis triggered a, a major rethink of the way that we uh, regulate and supervise banks in the U.S. As a whole, if you look at all the banks, they have lots of capital, lots of liquidity. Um, and indeed, in 2020, when we were going through the dark days of the pandemic, you know, banks were a source of stability and increasing lending. So absolutely, I, I do think it's an important reason uh, to, th to think of the banking system as supporting uh, the, the economy and not being a headwind. Rich Clarida, thank you so much for taking the time, as always. You, Wonderful Lisa. to get your insights. Chris Heisey joins us now, Chief Investment Officer at Maryland Bank of America Private Bank. Chris, let's start here with the dream, the story for next year, if you will. This is the story. So inflation is going to keep coming down. Growth is going to be OK. And the Federal Reserve is going to cut interest rates and the equity market is going to keep on exploding higher. So that's the story. Can you tell us how expensive is that story now for next year, given the rally we've had in the last two months? Well, it, it appears expensive because of how fast it's been priced in, but we have a long way to go. There's still a lot of cash on the sidelines, not just from an investor perspective, institutional and private client, but also the corporate cash still earning a very healthy return at the short end of the curve. That's keeping margins wide. And with the debt structure in the corporate markets right now, overall, their liabilities are still low. So we can chunk out some very solid earnings here and Lisa was talking about this echo of inflation. I think that's the perfect way to think about it. There are echoes. There's going to be a lot of echoes about, are we having a soft landing? There will be pockets of bumpiness. And that will keep investors a little bit still concerned. Right now, the wall of worry, you know, may be a little bit lower than normal, but that wall doesn't go away. That wall ends up uh, rising a little bit as we get into next year. There's like five bricks left in it, Chris. I'm not sure what you're talking about. What bears are left? <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of bears. Uh, they'll come out of the cupboard again and out of the cave uh, as soon as you see one bad number, either on the earnings front, yep. on the inflation front, or something like that. And, and that will actually cause some second guessing. But we think there's a lot of room to go here. Uh, we're not out of the woods, and we have a lot of work to do. But, but we're not fully priced in. So, Chris, you're saying that the bears still exist. You're just not one of them. After hearing from Jason Trenet, the Fed shot the bears, and from A.V. Sheffield, that uh, Powell's press conference reminded us that the Fed's ultimate goal is not price stability and full employment, but rather to make people happy. So, in other words, how much can people remain bearish with a Fed that essentially has a big put and they're putting it in? 
Well, I think the Bears got very frustrated this past year, and rightfully so. They expected earnings to decline. They expected stickiness on inflation. The number one surprise for most people was that inflation came down as sharp as it already has. Uh, that really shouldn't have been a, a surprise when you had quantitative tightening plus all the, the hikes that went through. Now, granted, the Fed did add a lot of liquidity to the, program, uh, to the, to the markets itself. That helped grease, grease the train tracks. But overall, what we've noticed is this. The bears ultimately go away for a while. They come back after you start to see some of consternation in some of the economic data. Europe uh, could surprise to the downside. We don't know what China's growth rate is going to be, and that could be exported to the United States. So we're still going to grow below trend, and everyone's happy right now, and the drumbeat of soft landing is there. But as soon as you get some bumpiness, the market will pull back a little bit, probably late January, early February. And we think that that is a buying opportunity because it's all about earnings next year. Chris, I got to say, I knew what you were going to say before you said it, because that's what everyone's saying. In January, we're going to get turbulence and buy the dip. And so at a certain point, this really is the exact same setup that we had this year, which was when you get a decline, buy the dip. We didn't really get a decline. We did a little bit and people just came in gangbusters. Is this buy the dip going to be the broadening out that we see now? Is this basically the playbook for next year just a little bit premature yeah so the bulls are are, are beating the drum on the megatech still uh, in some cases that makes sense because that's the area of healthiest balance sheets high quality but the question is going to become how much can they surprise above the earnings expectations but the broadening out of the market is the one area that some are now starting to warm up to they've been left for dead much of the rest of the market, particularly small caps and value overall, we think the next story beginning already this past month, carrying into next year, for the next five years, the leadership are those areas, predominantly because of their underpriced movement versus the large quality, high quality area of the market, not just this past year, but over the past quite a few number of years. Last but not least, I'd say this, Lisa, those, those bears in terms of what they're looking at right now, they're looking at the what could be versus the what is. And the ultimately, when that conclusion doesn't come through about what could be, stickiness or remo uh, uh, resumption of inflation, or much lower, maybe the negative leading uh, economic indicators indicate lower growth, negative growth, that's what could be versus what is and what the data is telling us. Chris, you mentioned the small caps. We've started to see that participation in the last few months. Small caps started to do well. The banks have absolutely ripped. There's one area of the stock market that hasn't participated. It's been left for dead. It's been the energy stocks. The energy names, as we've seen this rally play out, double-digit percentage point gains on the S&P 500. Energy's negative on the S&P, Chris. What's behind that and what changes that story, if at all, into next year? Yeah, Jonathan, and this is in the face of basically a year's worth of gains in a month and a half. You really think about the broad market itself. Small caps, the rest of the market outside the Magnificent Seven rallied over 12, 13 percent uh, from the flatline level, and they've actually outperformed. But the one sector, as you said, energy, high free cash flow, actually better balance sheets than people think. Uh, I think there's a growth worry there for the energy sector. We've been overweight. The energy sector has not worked this year. We expect that angle in terms of investors looking for free cash flow again to start to come in. Uh, but it's all about the oil price right now. It's weakness in Europe. It's the below trend growth in the U.S. It's a lot of stories of a cloud hanging over what traditionally would be an area that you would hunt for, particularly when financials are, are working. You would think that some of the other areas like energy would. 
But right now it's pushed off the blotter. It's not on the buying blotter of a lot of the asset managers. And they're waiting for signs that oil prices are going to come back up again. Chris, when you talk with the clients, how willing are they to actually deploy cash right now? How much are they feeling the holiday season of bullishness? Uh, just two months ago, it was all about uh, what's around the corner to actually thwart any extra rally. Now it's all about, okay, where should I be as it relates to the market? Not significant enthusiasm because the geopolitical curve and volatility is still there, as you, as you talked about before in the Red Sea. But ultimately, heading into next year, the common question is always, how should we be positioned? Now it's about how much and when should I be adding to areas of equities and longer duration fixed income. Uh, we talked about it in the summer. We talked about it again in the fall. No one throws up a flare gun. No one rings a bell when that's going to happen. Yep. There's always a surprise that comes in. That surprise came with the Fed pivot, particularly Powell. We expect a couple more surprises to the upside early next year. The psychology of markets is just phenomenal. Chris Heisey, Chris, thank you, sir. Enjoy the Christmas break of Maryland Bank of America Private Bank. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Let's get to the bomb market. Sabadra Jaffa, head of U.S. race strategy at SogGen. Sabadra, I want to talk about your call on the bond market. It's refreshing. It's not super bearish. It's not super bullish. It's just neutral. Sabadra, why is it neutral? Well, into your end, I think that we've already seen a very large rally in, in treasuries uh, in just the last few weeks. So it doesn't make any sense for the market to continue to rally from here on. Uh, we think that the, that the bond market, at least over the near term, is going to lose some momentum, given the fact that we're priced nearly for six cuts for next year. Uh, so that seems a little bit dramatic. I think I think uh, our view is that the Fed um, will deliver a height starting in May, but a March rate cut definitely seems a little bit premature at the current time. As you were discussing earlier, John, uh, you're looking at an outlook where uh, financial conditions have eased quite dramatically. Inflation is coming down very nicely. Gas prices or oil oil prices in general have, have declined uh, quite meaningfully. So the consumer is still relatively uh, strong. So the risk here is that we might see a resurgence in services side inflation. Let's build on that a little bit more. Where would that leave the call on the yield curve? Because traditionally, when we're talking about maybe the end of cycle, maybe the start of a rate-cutting regime, you'd get that bull statement up. 
come through the curve. Sabatra, what's the call for you and the team now through next year? So our call and our outlook that we published in the end of November was that the first move would be towards a bull flattener with the front end pegged and, and the long end rallying. But that hasn't happened. The market has priced in a lot of cuts in a very short amount of time. But the long, long end has also rallied. So the two cents part of the, of the yield curve is still uh, quite inverted. Uh, you are going to see that disinvert and steepen out with the, uh, you know, as we progress. But that's going to be more of a uh, mid-2024 story when the Fed starts to cut rates aggressively. You're going to see that um, you know, curve steepen out. So for now, I think that inversion is very much in, in play because investors are getting back into the bond market in a big way across the curve. You're seeing this formal trade uh, play out. And that, that would mean that uh, with the front end pegged to Fed expectations, uh, investors are going to also buy the long end. I was uh, struck by the Bank of America Global Fund Manager survey that showed people really going out of cash and into bonds. Uh, cash was cut to a two-year low, and people were the most overweight bonds in 15 years. Have we already seen the rotation out of cash, out of money market funds that would have transpired given the potential for rate cuts? Well, I think that what you're seeing is an asset allocation towards uh, bonds, given the fact that uh, you know, people have concluded that bond yields have topped around tens around five percent is as high as it gets. If that's the case, you're going to get the best yield you've ever had in the last couple of decades. So it makes sense to allocate into, into bonds as well as perhaps other assets, but bonds first because the sequencing, the way it's going to work is, uh, you know, as the Fed uh, prepares to cut rates, the economy slows down. You're going to see bonds rally first, and then. If we do see a recession like we're, like we're expecting at South Gen by the middle of next year, then you should see some weakness in, in equities. And then you'll see the asset allocation into, into equities. But that's really not how it's playing out. There's just a lot of cash in the system, $6 trillion or so uh, close to that in money market funds. And that cash is just being uh, reallocated into other assets where you could potentially get higher returns over the longer run. So can you give us a sense of how much lower you think 10-year yields are going to end next year, given the fact that there still is a lot of cash to flow into bonds and you do expect weakness in the economy? So, uh, you know, our call for 10-year yields is uh, for 10s to get to around 375 uh, by the middle of next year. And the reason for that is is because we think that the U.S. economy goes into recession. So we, we do see more room uh, for 10-year yields to, to rally. I mean, uh, granted, when we put out these forecasts, 10-year yields were close to 5%. So 375 seemed like a stretch, but we're almost there uh, in a very short amount of time. Um, so, yeah, we, could we see, you know, 10-year yields dip below 375, perhaps? But really, the core story that, that I think that I'm, I'm sticking with is the fact that the sort of term premium buildup that we saw over the last, you know, uh, you know, I'd say since August to uh, to the end of October, that story is still very much in play. You're seeing the supply-demand imbalances uh, continuing to to plague the market. Um, you know, you're seeing tailed auctions. There's just not as much demand for Treasuries as we have seen in in in, uh, in in the past. And the Fed, you know, our call is that the Fed is going to continue to do QT not just into the end of 2024, but also into 2025. So given that sort of dynamic, it makes sense that you start seeing a buildup in term premium once the Fed starts cutting rates and the economy starts to stabilize. Sabatra, this was excellent. Just fantastic to hear from you.
Thank you. Samantha Japa there of Sogjen on this bond market. Joining us right now from the Atlantic Council is Ellen Wald. Ellen, this is a big, big story. Traffic going through the Suez Canal, the Red Sea, grinding to a halt. Can you walk us through the additional time that's required if you can't go through there and you need to go around the southern tip of Africa? What are we talking about here? Yeah, it seems that we're talking about an additional 12 to 14 days of travel time to go around uh, Africa. But that's not the only issue here. We're also talking about increased fuel for ships, a uh, longer trip for the crews on board. It's going to cost more. Uh, they're going to emit more uh, carbon. And so um, this isn't just, um, you know, it's not safe or the Suez Canal is closed. We've had that before. Um, this is a, a very significant journey. And it's particularly important right now because um, it used to be that Europe was getting a lot of its oil from Russia. That's not happening now. And it's relying a lot more on oil from the Middle East. And so if that oil can't go through the Suez Canal, then now we're talking an extra 12 to 14 day trip uh, around Africa. Um, And it also cuts out the Sumed pipeline because that pipeline is accessible. Also, uh, you have to go through the Red Sea to access that pipeline as well. So essentially only uh, you can get Saudi oil if it leaves uh, the west coast of Saudi Arabia, which isn't uh, you know a place where that much oil leaves Saudi Arabia, that can get to the Suez Canal or the Sumed pipeline without uh, threat of, of Houthi um, activity. But otherwise, uh, everybody else is, is stuck. So if this was 2021, this would be dreadful. 2022 chaos. We'd be talking about higher prices and inflation spiraling out of control. In 2023, it just feels like supply chains are in a better place. And can you describe them? Are we in a better place? Yeah, we're definitely in a better place. This is not, we're not going to see oil shortages. We're not going to see gas lines. Um, you know, during the Suez Canal crisis in the 19, in 1956, that's what we saw when the Suez Canal was closed. Uh, we also didn't have at that time the very large crude carrier, which were these massive um, crude oil carriers, which they basically invented in order to take crude oil around Africa so that um, they could get enough to Europe. So we, we've got that now. So we're not talking devastation, but we are talking about increased time at a at a time when we've already got uh, increased time to get oil shipments to Europe. And uh, we're talking about increased costs. Are you surprised that we haven't seen more of a pop in oil prices as a result, Ellen? You know, uh, I'm not that surprised because this is something that's been going on for a while. And it's only recently, I think, escalated to the point where um, tankers and shipping companies that are not directly connected with any kind of Israeli interests are are getting concerned and are making moves. So I think that the market has kind of been anticipating this for a bit of time. And then you've also got these overall kind of economic issues waiting on the market. I think that maybe they should be more concerned, especially because um, the idea that suddenly the U.S. Uh, Defense Secretary is only now setting up a commission to deal with this, uh, that doesn't bode well. And there are questions around what that commission can actually do, what they are willing to do, and what exactly the conversations are uh, between the U.S. and Riyadh, for example, which might have more influence over the Houthis uh, than, say, Canada. So how much, from your perspective, do you think that the right people are involved in these conversations? And do you have a sense of what the potential allies in the region might be willing and able to do? 
I think that Riyadh would love nothing more than a green light from the United States to just bomb the heck out of the Houthis in Yemen. I don't think they're going to get that. I think the real issue here is where the Houthis getting this technology and these drones to buzz these ships and cause these issues. Uh, and that's the answer to that is Iran. And when you look at the, the likelihood of maybe a U.S.-Iranian confrontation over this, that's not something I think the U.S. is willing to risk. So the question is really, what kind of show of force uh, is the United States and, and potentially a an international coalition? Because a safe passage of the, in the seas, essentially freedom of the seas, is an international issue. This is not just uh, a U.S. issue or a U.S.-British issue. This is really an international issue that China should be concerned about, Korea, and we've got every, everyone should be much more concerned about this than they are. But the question is, who's going to actually put, uh, you know, put the muscle where it needs to be. And I'm not sure that we're seeing willingness to do that. You touched on potential losers. I believe you mentioned European importers. Can we talk about winners? Who wins from this situation, Ellen? Africa. Uh, I'm sure that um, South Africa is absolutely thrilled to see lots of increased traffic at its ports. Um, in an extra, you know, 12 to 14 day trip, sailors are going to want to stop. They're going to want to, you know, have a break. They're going to want to go, uh, you know, on land. And so I think Africa is definitely a winner here because they're seeing a lot more traffic and that means they can uh, charge for it. I do think that Egypt is a huge uh, loser here that really can't be overlooked because if we're seeing a lot less traffic in the Suez Canal, uh, they're losing money over this and and a lot of money and just to finish on prices oil versus gas is it a bigger issue for one versus the other or the same I don't think so, because also when we talk about um, oil going through the Suez Canal, we often talk about it in terms of petroleum products overall. We're not really differentiating between crude oil and, and products here. So um, I, I think it's, it's, all, uh, it's all tied in. Ellen, thank you. Appreciate the update. Want to watch a developing story over the last week for sure. Ellen Wald there of the Atlantic Council. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, tune in and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.